theme on the Feast of Jehovah with a big chart. And I use this as my theme. And we did it every place I went. Because we don't give enough respect and heed, heed to the Word of God. Ancient words long preserved. Now it says, changing me and changing you. Now I ask you a question. Before I even begin this morning, are you willing to let the Word of God change you? Now this is to everyone. Whether you're saved 40 years or 40 days, are you willing to let the, the Word of God change you? And then it says, we have come with open hearts. That's a tricky question, isn't it? Are we really open to what the Word of God says? I would trust you won't listen to me, but that you will listen to the Word of God. We have come with open heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart you. See, these are words, thanks, Matthew. These are words that we've had, society, the world has had, for basically 3,500 years. New Testament, 2,000, with the Old Testament, another 1,500 years. 3,500 years this has been here. And we have let society assail, attack, undermine, demean this book. My Bible tells me that faith <clears throat> comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. My Bible tells me that the Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures point you to Christ. Nothing else will do that. The Lord accosted the religious leaders in John 5. He says, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. What he was saying was, you've been studying the Old Testament for all these years, and you missed the message. The message was about me. If you miss Christ, you miss the message, you see. It's about him. Ancient words, long preserved. Ephesians chapter 6, if you turn there, please, I'm jumping right in so I don't waste my time this morning, eat the clock on me, on my own clock here. This is the theme I was addressing at Bethany this week, and I will be again tonight. I'm just going to finish up tonight, as a matter of fact. But I want to. I want to whet your appetite. I was quite surprised. I'm not a, I'm not a very great English student. I've learned to be a very, uh, much more committed grammarian, as in the grammar of the English language, because if you teach the Word of God, you gotta, I've learned the hard way, I had to know something about grammar. And when everyone, when everyone, anyone said to me, now have your, that, uh, that's, this might whet your appetite, to me it was W-E-T. I didn't realize it was W-H-E-T, it's a different word altogether, but it means to, means to uh, attract you to look further, to look deeper, to interest you, to pique you a little bit. And Ephesians 6 is one of those great passages, which is uses a number of, I call them connective words, connective words like therefore, or, or uh, uh, but, or uh, finally, which is one of our, which is our first word, finally, brethren, Ephesians 6 and verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's a connective word. Finally means we've been reading the book of Ephesians, Church of Ephesus. This is where this letter was sent. 
We've studied chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Finally, now you understand that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions were given around the 4th century sometimes. They just read one long paragraph. But we've divided it up, or not we, but scholars in the 4th century, and now preachers have taken their run at dividing it up a little bit. And the preachers have taken chapter 1, 2, and 3 and said, this speaks of our wealth. The wealth that we have in Christ. I think the word in Christ is stated or inferred 14 times in chapter 1. In Christ. It's all in Christ. If you have Christ, you have life. If you don't have Christ, you don't have life. 1 John 5, 12. It's all in Christ. Your wealth. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore... I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you have been called. So, chapter 1, 2, and 3 is the wealth. Chapter 4 and 5 is the walk. And now we have the warfare. Wealth, walk, warfare. Finally, having learned the wealth and started to exercise your walk, now it's time to realize we're in a battle. Watchman Nee, in his really great little commentary in Ephesians, which is a very small little book. If you ever see it, grab it. Not inspired, but it's very good. And he didn't use wealth, walk, warfare. He, he used the three words, sit, walk, stand. I like that. The word stand appears four times here in this little uh, verse uh, 10 through uh, uh, 14. It, uh, it's used four times. Sit, walk, stand. Sit in Christ in the heavenlies. Learn of him. Again, walk. And then stand. The little buzzword, buzz phrase, more corrected, that I developed for this study is we have to understand, we have to embrace this statement that I'm going to make here. Every believer, the reality of this statement. The Christian walk is not a playground. It's a battleground. Christian walk is not a playground. It's a battleground. See, we live much of our Christian life like it's a playground. I got my ticket to heaven, whatever. Doesn't matter. Everything else doesn't matter. Well, kind of does. Kind of does. You see, we're not in a playground. We're on a battleground. And <clears throat> I find it interesting. I go back to that course, ancient words long preserved, changing me and changing you. That way, way back in the book of Joshua, we have the introduction to this warfare. Way back in Joshua, the groundwork was established or set in place so that we would not argue with God, because that's what we do. When we resist, we don't have to be, it doesn't have to be verbal. We don't have to be toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose to be arguing. All we've got to do is resist, and we're arguing in so many words. Arguing with God while... I'm not really in a battleground. I don't sense any battle. Battle? What battle? Or 
More specifically, are you waiting for this? Satan, really? A Satan? Oh, come on, a devil? A real devil? A real power? Oh, come on. Really? I mean, that's so Hollywood. See, Hollywood has, has taken this subject and made such foolery out of it. And the Christians have bought the foolery. Satan is real. Hal Lindsey, back in the 70s, wrote a book. His second book, his first one was The Late Great Planet Earth. The second of note, anyways. And the third of note was Satan, Alive and Well on Planet Earth. Pretty good book, actually, on this subject. Satan is real. The concept of an enemy to the believer is real. Don't be lied to. The first attack, the first victory that Satan would get you to buy into is that he doesn't really exist. That's pretty effective if you think about it. I'm not really going to shoot any arrows. We're pals, right? You don't have to fear me. I'm here to help you. Now, I said to you, I don't want you to hear me. I want you to hear the Word of God. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There's a fascinating two verses. Three, actually. The first one is verse 3. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. It says of Satan, But I fear, Paul by the Holy Spirit is speaking to the Corinthian church, but I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness or subtlety or deception, essentially all the same word, by his deception, so your minds might be deceived from the simplicity that is in Christ. Satan is about steering you away from the person of Christ, getting you to study yourself, look at yourself, get involved in the world around you, anything else but Christ. Remember I said he, he'll come alongside of you as kind of your buddy, and he'll say, listen, this is okay, this is good, uh, there's nothing wrong with this particular thing or this particular activity, uh, and so on. And, oh, there's nothing wrong with this book, it's a great book, see, it's in a Christian book, so it must be good. One of the most effective lies I've ever heard. It's in a Christian book, so it must be good. They wouldn't sell something that wasn't good, would they? Really? Really? Think about that for a minute. A lot of Christians tell me that. I've had, I've had them toe off with me on that one. To absolutely no avail. The enemy is very subtle. Genesis 3 says, more subtle, subtle than any beast which the Lord God had made. Satan is very subtle, very crafty. And it says in 11... 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of what? Righteousness. Whose end will be according to their works. One of the things that 
If you learn anything in Scripture about Satan, learn this. He's very patient. He's very patient. And he's also uh, very wise. Don't want to give him too much credit, but we need, to, we, need, we need to know our enemy here. In Ezekiel 28, it says, not once, not twice, I think it's three times. He was the most perfect of all God's creation. You know that? Satan is not to be trifled with, taken seriously. But understand that he's had thousands of years of dealing with Clifford's, David's, Ken's, John's, Mary's, Esther's. We think we're, we, we pose some different package. Yeah, right. Keep telling yourself that. He's dealt with hundreds of us. Each one of us. Thousands, really. We're not that unique. This whole thing about snowflakes, forget about that. That's not spiritual. You know, Satan's going to come after you. And he's going to be subtle. He's not going to come with a pitchfork and a tail and a, and a red suit and horns. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to be, he's going to use craft and guile and subtlety and patience. He's going to boil you alive very slowly in hot water, if he can. And you're not even going to notice it. You're just going to be swept along. And the believer has to recognize the reality of what I'm saying, not to be fearful, but to be aware. Warren Wiersbe, I think, very wisely made this statement. I think he's dead on on this, and it's not a statement that I would have crafted this way. I mean, I don't want to find a fault with it. It's just that he's a much better wordsmith than I am. And he made this statement. We do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. What's the difference? Well, for victory would imply that, that we as individuals have to actually win something. He says, no, 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 no. I already won. What I need you to do is stand the battle line and be ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.18. That's what I need you to do. You've already won, but now you've got to stand the battle line because he's going to try to render you ineffective, tarnish, spoil, sully your testimony. That's what you're going to try to do. Don't let him do it. Don't let him win on that ground. So what I want to very quickly show you is in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua chapter 1, again, this is the great illustration, in my opinion, in the Old Testament, of what we need to learn about this warfare. You see, and I need to correct this right off the jump. In fact, I heard on, uh, I have a Sirius radio in my van, and, uh, and, and, and uh, channel 65, I think it is, is called Enlightenment or something like that. And it's, it's, it's mostly older gospel music, mostly southern gospel music, and I like that stuff. And, and, and there was a, a piece on yesterday, and I kind of thought to myself, this is why I preach. Because the whole message of the piece was, we cross Jordan into heaven. No! <laughs> and I wouldn't take, I didn't bother, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't take me any time at all in the hymn book to find at, at least probably two or three numbers 
in, in any hymn book that talk about Jordan being death and after Jordan is heaven. Not that you're on earth and yet when you're, that you're in heaven when you cross the Jordan. No, you're not. That's hymnology. That's not theology. Crossing the Jordan, entering the promised land, the land, the land of milk and money, I, I mean honey, <laughs> I'm a Freudian slip there. No, but listen carefully. Going into the promised land is Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, the wealth that we have. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, but we have it now. But they're spiritual, they're heavenly blessings, but we have now. This is the children of Israel going to the promised land. And when you start to read Joshua chapter 1, 2, and 3, you find in chapter 1, he says to Joshua, and I'm just going to shorten this up really, really um, overly brief, if it really is what I'm saying to you here. But in, in Joshua chapter 1, it says in verse 3, God is speaking to Joshua. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua, it's your time. Take the mantle of leadership. It's not a surprise to Joshua. He's already been introduced to all this earlier. But now you're on. Joshua, front and center, you're up. You're up. It says here in verse 3, Every place, Joshua, that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. With you is a key expression here. I will not leave you nor forsake you. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? First time we see that, uh, that phrase. By the way, it's famous to Christians today because of Hebrews 13.5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Here's the first place you have it. See these ancient words long preserved. There's a message to the Jew. There's a message to the Christian, to the church. But sometimes we can go back and look at at what God is saying in the Old Testament and realize that while this may have a primary application to the nation of Israel, in principle, it also applies to me. And the way you can know that is when you see a tether line that takes you all the way over to Hebrews 13.5. You say that, you say, okay, God must want me to learn something from way over here. The first place that appears is in Joshua chapter 1. He must want me to look at this and learn something from this. Not to mention the fact that Romans 15, 4 and verses like this tell us to go to the Old Testament and learn the lessons we need to learn. So he says here, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and modifier, very courageous, that you may be, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commands you, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand nor to the left, that you may prosper wherewith, wherever you go. 
take the word of God at what? Face value. Take it for what it says. Don't just run to try to explain it away somehow. Before you do that, take it at face value. Take it chapter and verse, what it says. You don't need a, a, a four-degree Bible scholar to teach you what something says in the Word of God. Now, be careful about this. The New Testament was written, for the most part, in, its, in the New Testament era, to illiterate slaves. Illiterate slaves. It's a fancy word for they couldn't read and write. You don't have to get a heavy-duty, fanciful explanation for everything. In probably 98% of the time, the explanation is right in front of you. Five verses ahead, or back, five verses ahead, that 10, 15-verse window is your explanation. I would say nine times out of 10, 15 verses will give you what God's trying to say to you. If you don't understand the verse, back up five verses. I'm saying five. It could be seven, could be 10. Back up five verses. Go ahead, five verses. Read everything together couple of times and then go back and read that one verse and say, well, seems to say this, and you'd be right. Nine and a half times out of ten, you'll be right. It wasn't complicated. Most of the false doctrine that we are dealing with in the evangelical church is taking a verse out of the passage, off the page, setting it over here, and saying, according to what I read here, this is what it says. Whoa. Let's put it back in here. Read five verses up and five verses after. Now what does it say? It would smooth out a lot of the false doctrine that we are dealing with today. It would be solved in an instant. So he says here, don't deviate from the word of God to the right hand nor to the left. Stay on it. And he says, by the way, in verse 7, to do that you may observe to do. Then he says in verse 8, in case you didn't get it, he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do all that is written therein, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success, that you may observe to do all that is written therein. Second time. You see, doing the word of God, not just reading it. Here's an interesting catapult into the New Testament. James chapter 1 verse 22, I think it is 22, says if you, that we should be hearers, not just hearers of word, but doers, lest we deceive ourselves. That's a pretty bad paraphrase, but that's what it's saying, basically. Don't just be a hearer, be a doer of the word of God, otherwise you'll deceive yourself. You'll lie to yourself. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, Deception is Satan's favored tool. He deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden. He got her to believe something that wasn't true. He deceived her. Don't be deceived. If we read the Word of God and don't do what we know it to say to do, and we don't do it, we deceive ourselves. And Satan says, great, carry on. I don't have to do a thing here. Let sleeping dogs lie, as we say sometimes. Now, I'm not going to disrupt this guy. He's going along just fine on his own. He keeps reading this stuff and ignoring it. He keeps rationalizing it away. 
let him go. He's on a course to destruction. He just doesn't know it. Now, destruction doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. You can't lose it. What it does mean is that you will lose your effectiveness or your witness, your ability to impact the unsaved around you. That is Satan's victory in the Christian's life. To sully, to spoil your impact on the unsaved. He's won. He lost the battle for your soul the moment you trusted Christ. He lost the battle. battle was over. That battle is over. Turn out the lights. The party is over. Let's go home. Satan has lost you. So does he quit? No. He attacks you to try to make sure you don't affect anybody else. That's what he's after. Then he gets the secondary, the third, the fourth, the fifth victory. When you don't have that initial influence on the unsaved around you who are watching the change in your life and they they can't believe it, they're standing in awe and wonder and amazement, what's going on with you? Well, actually, I came to know the Lord as my personal Savior. What? You? Come on. When Bob Dowie in, uh, back in Ireland got saved, the night he got saved, he was getting on the bus, actually late at night, and his buddy that he had run the roads with for years prior who knew him only as a, as a drunken partier, he was telling him on the bus stop, standing at the bus stop, about Christ having changed his life, and the guy was laughing. And the bus came up, and it was the last bus of the night, as I remember the story, and Dowie had to get on the bus. So he got on the bus, and, and he went down, he opened the window, and he said something to him, and the guy says, Ha ha! You'll never make it! That was the last word he said to him. You'll never make it! He laughed, and Dowie said, You know, he, he was right. On my own, I wouldn't, but I'm in Christ now. He which hath begun a good work in me, Philippians 1, 6, will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. You see, he carries me to the finish line. Good thing, eh? Because we wouldn't make it on our own. Christ in me, Colossians 1, 26, the hope of glory, 1, the hope of glory. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says... Observe to do all is written therein. Do it, and you will have victory. Now, I said all that to get to this. The great victory in the promised land came, I'm going to say day one, but I don't mean literally the very first day. I simply mean as soon as they got across the Jordan River and they camped on the victory side, they unfolded the lawn chair, sat down, Got a nice cup of Kool-Aid with a couple of ice cubes. Where they got those in the desert, we don't know. And a straw. And they said, this is it. We're here. <laughs> Nothing to do now. Isn't this great? No. What was the first thing they had to do? They had a formidable fortress standing right in front of them. It's called a city or the fortress of Jericho. And he said, before you <laughs> sit down, which you're not going to do any sitting for a while because you're going to be claiming the land which I've already given to you, but you've got to go in and put your foot on it. Because, guess what? Here's a revelation. You're not in a playground. You're in a battleground. So you're going to have to fight. But I'm going to do your fighting for you 
And just so that you understand the whole principle, I'm paraphrasing here, God talking to the children of Israel through Joshua, just so that you understand the principle, we're going we're gonna to defeat this fortress. But the way we're going to defeat it is, you don't need any weapons. Leave your weapons at home. Pardon me? Leave them at home. You don't need them. You're going to march around the city. You're going to follow the ark. The priests are going to carry the ark. You're going to march around the, the city. And the priests are going to blow their horns. And uh, you're going to do that once each day. Then you're going to go back and sit down. Have lunch. And then tomorrow we're going to do it again. And then the next day, we're going to do it again. And then the next day, we're going to do it again. We're going to do it for six days. You're going to march around once, go back and sit down in your camp. And, but the seventh day, you're going to march around seven times. And you're going to be blowing the trumpets. And when you get around the seventh time, you're going to shout. And when you shout, that's the only time he very specifically tells them there's to be no words spoken, nothing, until I tell you. When I tell you, you shout for all your worth. And they do that. And you know the rest of the story. The, the walls completely collapse. And he, and he very specifically tells them, I want each one to turn and march in exactly where they are. And that's a, that, that's a great little truth, you know. We, we sometimes don't realize the, the significance of that. He says, I want you to go straight in where you are. I don't want you to, to find a circuitous route that's eh, it's a, little, you know, it's a little tight there. I'll go here. It's easier here. He said, no, I want each one to go straight in. Why is that important? Because if I were to line six of us across here, and say, okay, each guy moves straight through. Guess what we have here? All six are going to have a slightly different obstacle to deal with to get to the where we're supposed to be. I'm going to have to cl climb over this. You'll be pleased to know I'm not going to go any further with it. <laughs> But you follow, and, and Sam is going to be over here, and you're going to see. <laughs> Look at this. Click. Easy. He can have a much easier route. Unless he's here, in which case he's got to not quite as high as me, but it's a little easier for him. And David might be over here, and he's just got to jump over this thing, take the banjo with him. Thought that was cool, the banjo. I was sitting there thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to rib Sam, but not playing the banjo. And then the next time I look around, he's got the banjo in his hand. I said, all right, there goes that line. Do you follow what I mean? We all have a little different route. Our lives are not the same. Our instruction is the same. Turn and go straight in. But I'm going to be with each one. I'm going to... I'm going to... enable each one for whatever it is you have to deal with. I'm going to be your strength. I'm not going to be the strength of this guy. I'm not going to do anything for him. This guy's on his own. I'm going to see if he can make it. This guy I'm going to help, and this guy over here I'm going to help. No, no. He helps. He equally helps us all. Now, my point being, we have this battle that we're facing, this obstacle. We're not in a playground, beloved. 
We're in a battleground. So he says, finally, I got to get back to my, my subject here. Ephesians 6, he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I gave this as a memory verse to the kids at camp two weeks ago. I said, I want emphasis on the right syllable. Nah, I didn't say that. But anyways, I said emphasis. I said inflection. I had a girl who was learning English. She was from Quebec. And, I, and she was coming up to help me to listen to the verses. And I said, I'm going to give extra points if they use inflection. And she looked up to me. She says, inflection? Qu'est-ce que c'est? Inflection. What's that? She never heard that word before. And I explained emphasis. Oh, got it. So she went out. She's really cute. Laura Cox, really cute. She went out and she listened to the version. She came back. She said, they were all perfect. And they used inflection. She said, threw that word out at me. And they used inflection. But you know, when you, when you, when you memorize a verse, and I, 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 I implore you to do so, Learn what the verse means. Learn it in phrases. Use inflection. So that every time you say it, you're pressing the point to whomever may be listening. Spiritual realm. Satan, I need you to understand something. I'm strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. I'm not standing before you in my own strength. I'm strong in the Lord. And in case you didn't know this, Mr. Satan, I actually learned this way back in Ephesians chapter 1 when I was learning the wealth. When I was learning to sit in Christ, my Bible tells me, and what that I might, that I might uh, understand, just to paraphrase slightly, what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power. Do you see the inflection? His power, not mine. It's not all about power. It's about whose power? His power. Satan, I already learned this back in Ephesians chapter 1. And then if that's not enough, Mr. Satan, also in Ephesians chapter 3, just learning still more about my wealth and learning to sit in Christ, it says there that uh, God would grant me according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. God says, I need to be, I need you to understand that I need to be stronger in you. Not that God isn't being strong enough, it's that we are not applying it. We need to understand how important it is that we stand in Him. Then after all that, He says, finally, we've learned the wealth and the walk, finally, understand something. I know you're tired of me saying this. Clifford, you're not on a playground. You're on a battleground. Now it's time to put it to work. Now it's time to put your wealth and your walk. Put some wheels under that and start to move it. And put it to good use in the warfare. He says, put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able 
to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles there in the Greek, you know what it is? Great little word. When I tell you the word, you're going to say, that's not Greek, it's English. Only it's not, it's Greek. The English word came from the Greek word. The word is, for wiles, methodia. Yes, that's the right word. I didn't make this up. M-E-T-H-O-D-I-A makes it Greek, methodia, to, from which we get the, the very common English word methods. That you may be able to stand against the plural methods of Satan. He's got many. And you're not quite sure which method he's going to pull out of the bag at 2 o'clock this afternoon. What's going to happen at 2 o'clock? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. I don't know. Might be 3. Like, but the difference to come after you at 2.30. He might be after you right now. What method is he using? In order to ward off that method, you need the whole, emphasis on the word whole, armor of God. The Greek structure tells us the emphasis is on the word whole. And then if that's not enough, he repeats it in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand an evil day, and having done all, to stand. The whole armor. Give attention to having it all on. Now, you're saying, well, that's fine. You told us what to do, but you didn't tell us what the armor is. Well, that's because I only have so much time this morning. And this is actually eight messages, kind of the introduction to which I'm giving you in a little bit more. But the thing is, is that some of it's pretty simple. Again, remember unlearned slaves. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, the Word of God. The person of Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit of God, He's the Spirit of truth. Truth, truth, and truth. Having girded your waist with truth. It's one of the key pieces of armor. Because the helmet, the Roman soldier oftentimes hung it on his belt and his shield on the other side, not the great big shield, but the smaller round shield that they used for parade and for hand use in the streets. When they went to the battlefield, they took the big shield. But for general use, they had a smaller round shield and it hung on their belt. And as soon as they saw problems, first thing they did was put their helmet on, strap it, and take off their shield and their sword come out. The sword, the, sword, the shield, and the helmet were all hanging on the belt. <laughs> Belt's pretty important, doesn't it? See, they all relate to truth. <coughs> They're all connected to truth. We learn about the helmet of salvation. I already quoted those verses earlier. And the shield of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? The word of God. Connected to the belt. And the sword of the spirit hanging on a scabbard on the belt, which is the word of God. That one he actually tells you in case you missed it. Sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Then he gives us several illustrations that, that the, word is, the Word of God is a sharp two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and, and joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's Hebrews 4.12. When the Lord comes in glory and majesty and judgment in, in Revelation chapter 19, it says that His Word will be the Word of God. Interesting. Ancient words long preserved, changing me and changing you. At the end of the world, the Christ rejectors are going to be faced up 
with the fact that they denied the truth of God's word. The Lord himself said in John 12 to the religious leaders, the words that I have spoken, the same will judge you in the last day. The word of God. It says that out of his mouth is a sharp sword. Out of his mouth. What comes out of your mouth? Words. See, it's a continuation of that same word picture. The word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. And so he, sa he tells us that we need our waist girded about with truth and the breastplate of righteousness, a godly walk. Don't deviate from the word to the left or to the right. If the word tells us to do something, beloved, with all the kindness but sincerity I have, do it. Don't rationalize it away. It doesn't matter what the world is doing. You do what the Word of God says. You're not going to answer for the fact that you, you, you stayed in rank with everybody else. In fact, God said, I thought that I told you not to do that. Uh, well, well, you remember. On this day and on this hour and this year, you read this verse. On this day, this hour, this year, you read this verse. He's going to know all this, by the way. <laughs> And you didn't just read it, you memorized it. Or you didn't just read it, you actually stepped back and said, listen, I know what that says, and there's no way I'm doing that. Let's be honest. That's what we say, don't we, sometimes? No way. Yes way. No way. Yes way. God's saying yes way, and you're saying no way. It's called rebellion. First Samuel says rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. What's the idol? Your will. Your will standing against God's word. You're going to lose. So the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, the word there is over all. It doesn't speak of, of priority, it speaks of position. Meaning simply, above all, taking the shield of faith, Faith is required to apply every single piece of armor. That's what the above all means. In every piece, apply it with faith. Faith that I told you to do it. Faith that it will work. Faith that I'm in each piece. Each piece speaks of the Word of God. Each piece speaks really specifically of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is each piece. He is our righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1.30. He is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. He is our truth, John 14.6. And so he is our salvation. He is our word. He's the word of God. He's the word of, uh, uh, the, he's the word made flesh, sorry, that dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is every piece. Faith has to be applied in every piece in order to be effective. So that's what the above all means. Each piece has to be applied and used and depended upon with faith. That this is what God wants you to do. With which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Begins with the Word of God, belt the truth. Ends with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. It's kind of packaged like bookends. The Word of God. Ancient words. 
long preserved, changing me, changing you. We have come with open heart. Let the ancient words impart. Are we open? Are we teachable? If you disagree with me, that's not going to mean anything. If you disagree with him, if you disagree with this, beloved, I say this kindly, you will lose. You will lose. Let me finish this morning by reading you a little illustration, apparently a true story. I said this, this little story once with a, and you'll know why this is important when I finish. There was an American that I knew very well sitting in the audience. He was on vacation in Charlottetown. And when I went down the aisle, he, he was on the thing. He says, Clifford, take it easy on the Americans, will you? That's what he said. I don't know if we have any Americans here. It doesn't really matter. They will vehemently say this never happened, but I rather suspect that the Canadians here are not lying. But that's just, we're just, we just don't lie. Unless we're running for office and then we get a pass, you see, on the lie thing, on the whole lie thing. Actually happened off the coast of Newfoundland. I know that calls it into question, but don't let that bother you. 1995. A U.S. warship. It gets a little off course. It's lost in a storm. And so it's communicating. It detects something on the radar. So the sound goes out over the radio. U.S. ship. Please divert your course zero five degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Canadian response, I was so polite, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. U.S. battleship, this is the captain. I'm raising my voice for emphasis. I believe this is the way it came across the radio. This is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The reply from the Canadian authorities, uh, no. I say again, you divert your course. U.S. battleship. This is an aircraft carrier, the USS Coral Sea. We are a large U.S. warship. Divert your course now. Canadian response. We're a lighthouse. It's your call. <laughs> Beloved, listen to this carefully now, and I finish with this. The ship is every representative of every believer. Every believer is like that ship. And the land represents the Word of God. Any time that ship, I don't care how big, comes in contact with the land in conflict it will lose. Every time. Ten out of ten. It will lose. When we resist the word of God and what we know it to say. Whether he's warning us of Satan. Or warning us of a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Warning us that there is a hell and a judgment. And we say, oh, Really? Listen, a God of love is never going to send people to hell. You, just, you evangelicals just don't understand this. And to which I was explained, no, actually, we do get it. That's the problem. But the difference is that we know that the love of Christ was demonstrated for us at the cross of Calvary. 
That's where he demonstrated that he loved us. And for salvation, we go to the cross. We see him dying there for us, for our sin. He bore my sin in his own body in the tree. And while you want to apply the love now to your situation, because you're being disobedient to what God's word clearly says, you want him to be your God of love here, but you refuse to go to the cross. He is a God of love. He loved you. He provided eternity at a horrible cost. This morning at the Lord's Supper, we talked of that. We read of that. We thought of that. We mused on that. The extreme length that he went to. Obedient unto death. Even, even, one of the greatest four-letter words in all of the Word of God. Even the death of the cross. That's how far he was willing to go. That's how far his love went. Ephesians says, you will study the length, the breadth, the depth, and the height of the love of God, which is past knowing. You'll never sound it out. You'll never understand it all. It's so vast. Our brother was saying after at the Lord's Supper this morning how, how the great truth of him coming from heaven as God and taking on the form of a man. That was the extreme that he went to because he loved us. So you deny and, 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 and resist that and say, well, I, I want to see his love over here for me. And God said, over here. This was for you. The cross was for you. And there's my love. Open your eyes. Be willing to see it. Are you willing to see it this morning? Tonight I will give the last segment of this series at Bethany. And if you're interested in those, in the subject of that armor, I'm sure if you ask someone there tonight, they will provide you the wherewith to get those tapes of the pieces of equipment, what the armor constitutes for you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we spent together this morning. We pray that you bless the word of God, the ancient word, to each heart this morning. I pray that it might have the profound effect this morning of changing us. Making us new. A new creation in Christ. Old things passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I pray, Lord, that we would be willing to hear the word of God this day. And we would allow the word of God to affect the change even if it's in a way that we really don't want, if it's what God wants, I pray we would align ourselves with God's perfect will in this regard. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.